1: From Nice Guy Productions' world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. It's time to talk about horror heroes, or rather, anti-heroes. It started in the teens, the 19-teens, with monsters that crept across the silver screen before they could speak. Lon Chaney was the first movie star identified almost exclusively with the horror genre. As the titular character in the Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Phantom of the Opera and numerous other such memorable roles, all of which he created his own makeup for, his popularity as a player of monsters was so strong that there was a common joke among the populace. Don't step on it, it might be Lon Chaney. Chaney surely would have made the transition to talkies had throat cancer not robbed us of his brilliance in 1930 the 1930s introduced a vast array of horror stars who brought life to the undead. Boris Karloff as Frankenstein's monster and the mummy, Bela Lugosi as Count Dracula and the broken necked Igor, and Cheney's own son, Creighton, who was christened Lon Jr. by Universal to capitalize on the popularity of his father. There were many who made their bones as horror stars throughout the decades of fright films. The Brits had Christopher Lee, who played every monster that Hammer Studios threw at him, Count Dracula, Frankenstein's Monster, The Mummy, and way, way more. And of course, Anthony Perkins made an indelible mark as Norman Bates in the psycho movements. But from the 1970s through today, there haven't been nearly so many actors identified as horror icons. Heroes, and especially heroines, yes, but actors who achieve fame through their portrayals of fiends, not so much. When the smoke clears, there is one who stands alone among them a great and trained dramatic artist who found success in films and television beginning in the mid-70s. But it was when Wes Craven cast him as Freddy Krueger in 1984 in A Nightmare on Elm Street that Robert Englund became an international icon of terror. Such an icon, in fact, that a new documentary all about Englund has just been released to theaters and screen box. It was a long road that led from Buster and Billy to Hollywood Dreams and Nightmares, the Robert England story. Let's take that trip with the talented and versatile Robert England. So, Robert, you did not start out wanting to be a horror icon. You were a very seriously trained actor uh, who went to RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts in England. Well, I, I trained with the faculty, the, uh, a great
0: faculty from RADA uh, that had taught Albert Finney and Peter O'Toole, uh, and Alan Bates and, and all those actors that we, that we know of and love. But, uh, uh, I all, I came back to America because I wasn't able to sustain it as a, a kind of a, a deferment, uh, from the draft. And I didn't, want to get my ass shot off in vietnam and uh i was lucky that many of the faculty uh took over a theater in the midwest the meadowbrook theater so i was able to uh uh, complete all of my training there and then work at the professional theater at night you know mopping the stage and and being an understudy since that was gosh we're talking now 1968.
1: Well, your dad was an engineer at Lockheed, where my dad also worked as a draftsman pretty close to the same time. So that's a very left brain, right brain family thing, something an engineer is very specific and very hardwired, whereas the looseness and creativity involved in acting is something that uses quite another discipline altogether. Was there resistance to the direction you took in your family or was there encouragement?
0: There was resistance. I mean, you know, a lot of people make now think of you as this raconteur and, and perhaps <laughs> a writer. But I, I mean, I think of you always as a director. And and I know you're using a lot of uh, the science that's in your DNA, but it never got in me, you know. Uh, and I my revelation was my father, when I was in these uh, uh, advanced placement cl- classes, not because I'm incredibly smart, but because I had tested off the charts for reading comprehension. So they pushed me ahead in school, a half a grade. And my father would hover over me when I was in, I remember pre-algebra, I think, or and factoring, I think it was. And I hit the wall so hard with that stuff. And of course, my father could just stand there you know, with a martini in his hand, glancing away in his skinny tie, like and his vest that Ed Harris wore in the right <laughs> stuff, and and just do it all in his head. And I knew I had none of that sensibility or intellect about me. It was really frustrating. And I think it was a bit frustrating for my father, too, that I just wasn't equipped with that, you know. But eventually he saw my the family name, single frame, my very first movie, fourth billing single card and uh I, and I kept this the family name as strange as it is with a, a U instead of an A in England, <laughs> and uh he was so proud of it you know that uh he was you know I had him I had him in the palm of my hand from then on. Uh,
1: that's so great. Now I remember 1974 going to the El Cajon Theater and seeing Buster and Billy and being really impressed. I remember you very well from that movie. You you really made an impression. And it yeah, was- I got a good review
0: in Time Magazine. In fact, one of my reviews thought that uh, Daniel Petri, the director who had, you know, a, a, the whitest man in the world from Canada, <laughs> he directed, uh, you know, the great Lorraine Hansberry, Raisin and a Son, uh, with Sidney Poitier and everyone uh, starting out. All the, all the great, great black actors in America were in that film. And, uh, uh, and, and so that was my my first audition uh a movie audition and uh i nailed it you know and uh uh you know buster and billy uh it, it had had good reviews but I, some people thought I, that daniel had gone out and with a butterfly net or something and found some <laughs> little kid with a banjo like the boy from uh deliverance uh, yeah deliverance <laughs> you know and, and put him in a movie, you know, and uh, I, I took that as a compliment, but uh, I was typed for quite a while as the Southern sidekick, you know, the Southern best friend, the buddy, the pal for a while. So when, when people get worried about me chafing at the, at the horror bit, they, they forget that for, you know, for five or six years, I was sort of the go-to redneck.
1: <laughs> and the irony of that is you're from Glendale, California. You're from Southern California. Well, you know,
0: I, because of, I spent a little bit of time in England and because I spent years uh, working with Englishmen. that uh, uh, came over, it came down from Stratford, Ontario, uh, the theater there, and it came from New York and came from L- London. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I actually did the, the, the Boyfriend, the musical that launched Julie Andrews. I actually did that with the original cast of all the young people who had turned old. So they did all the older roles. And of course I was one of the younger people in in the cast, but I got all of those stories, but I was around the Brits all the time Uh, at the Meadowbrook theater, uh, North of Detroit. It was on the edge of the Matilda Dodge estate and that's Dodge like cars. Right. I mean, and they had a screening room with, hand hand signed tiles by charlie chaplin and orson wells and people like at the largest indoor horse horse riding rink in the world bigger wow. than you know the disney movie A stoller yeah. Yeah. annette annette funicello on horseback you know there's a, <laughs> a fantasy but anyway um uh, uh and so we would go to the pub at night all of us you know spear carriers and extras and understudies and 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 scene removers and, scenery movers. and I, of course I was mopping the floor and uh, among other things and but we would go over there and they would regale us with tales you know about uh, who took care of Albert Finney's pregnancies and who fixed Peter <laughs> O'Toole's wife's teeth and 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 who was extraordinary and who wasn't and 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 great failures and and even, you know, stories about Olivier's flops, as well as, and we would just sit around, you know, like, like, you know, kids listening to campfire stories, you know, and, and, and of course, they all, all of the, the Rada faculty wanted to smoke marijuana and drink, you know, Italian wines with all of us, you know, and, and we just wanted to wear turtlenecks and jackets with patches on the sleeve and eat them. <laughs> so it was just sort of great moment of transfer between these wonderful seasoned stage veterans uh, from West End and and repertory theater in London, the Royal Shakespeare Company among them. And then all of us young American actors from all over America and Canada who'd managed to audition uh, and and been accepted.
1: Well, what an extraordinary time and experience. But it, it leads me to the question about you studied and trained in theater, classical theater, and and modern theater. And the difference between performing for a stage and performing for a camera where you're hitting your marks, it's a very technical thing, and yet you have to not be caught acting. The camera is so intimate. And tell me how it felt the first time you did film after having been so seasoned in the theater. Well, for
0: me, it was baptism by fire Mm -hmm. because... I was I had a starring role with what, back in 1973, arguably one of the biggest stars in the American cinema. Dick Clayton had let all of his client list go and kept two kids, two young guys. Uh, one was Burt Reynolds, who'd been you know evicted from the Universal contract system along with Clint Eastwood, and the other one was Jan Michael Vincent. Mm-hmm. And people forget just how big Jan was you know people forget about great films like White Line Fever yeah. you know and bite the Bullet uh, and the mechanic with Charles Bronson along with uh, you know the, one of the films I starred with him in uh, Buster and Billy but I was wearing very primitive special effect contacts and they were pink uh, and they were made in Beverly Hills and I was I went several times to Beverly Hills to have them fitted. And I'd never worn contacts before, and uh, I got on location, and I was down there in Statesboro, Georgia, the land of the almond brothers, yeah. and, you know, uh, eat a peach, and uh, yeah. and I, I, and with all that humidity and mosquitoes, and you know, of course, working nights, they turn those Klieg lights on, they turn the ten Ks on. And every bug, you know, in Georgia wakes up and circles. And if you're anywhere near that, you've got them up your nose, your mouth, your ears, and any other orifice that might be exposed. And uh, I, I, it was driving me nuts. And these primitive contact lenses, it's 1973 now, and they're colored. They felt like that old uh, children's book, uh, you know, with the dog who had eyes as big as saucers, literally it felt like I had saucers in my eyes. And on the very first evening of shooting, I went up to Daniel Petrie, and I said, Dan, I said, you know, uh, these are driving me nuts. All I can think about are these goddamn contacts. My eyes are watering. I have to tilt my head back because otherwise gravity's making me really look down low just because they feel so uncomfortable. And he said, Robert, take them out. We don't need them. He goes, the eyes are the windows of the soul. And actually, I had a little science on my side. My eyes... Are pale green, and uh, if you put green and red together, you get brown. And oh. the contacts were pinkish red, and uh, so I just squinted a lot, you know, and and kind of put to squint with my with my Georgia accent, and 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 the squint and the accent together, it seemed to go, it seemed to kind of meld, and uh, and I, and I got away with it, you know, because I was playing an albino who was ashamed of being an albino and who literally dyed his hair black with shoe polish. Right. You know, uh, I think that part of that backstory was cut out of the film, you know, but maybe Jan Michaels says it at one point, but there was a whole scene where you saw me, you know, with my toothbrush, putting, you know, bl- you know, blacking my hair up. Um, but that moment from Daniel Petri saying the eyes are the windows of the soul and just walking away. I'm leaving this young kid. I was 24 years old, I think, you know, leaving me there, you know, in my period wardrobe, you know, squinting away and trying to feel secure with this sort of Southern Georgian accent. Uh, you know, I, it was such a boost of confidence. And, and in the documentary and in my book, I try to mention all the times I can remember getting those wonderful uh, moments of approval. And confidence from superstars uh, and and stuff that were not afraid to tell me, go for it, kid. You know you've got something, and that that starts to layer in the back of your head as a kind of foundation of confidence. And uh, that was the one that's just sort of set me free. And I mean, I you know I still learn in front of the camera. You and I have discussed this before. It's that thing we that it's so intriguing about film work is you're always learning. And you're, it's for posterity and you're always doing something and it's print, you know, moving Moving on on. and, (laughs) and, 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 you know, you're driving home on the 405 at, Four in the morning and you go, Oh, wait a minute. I said that yeah. line wrong. Oh, wait. That's what that scene's about. Oh no. <laughs> and of course it's down forever. You know, you're this mistake, which may, is why when actors say they don't like watching themselves, that's why, because we see our own misreads and it might be a misread in a wardrobe choice that that was our fault, or it might be a prop we chose that we shouldn't have or a prop we should have used that we should have fought for, or, it, 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 you know, it, or just a line reading, you know, and I have famous line readings as Freddie that I misread. And, and and you know, I, now I, you know, when I go to conventions and things, I share that story, you know, with the fans. So they know that, you know, we all make mistakes and, and, and sometimes it doesn't matter. You
1: know? Absolutely. And there are some it takes a village to make a movie. But oh, my God, but, what a, what a great lesson on your very first time out. You know, literally my first day,
0: my first yeah. day of shooting. And you know, Daniel Petri, I'll always love him for that and and respect him for having that confidence in me.
1: But the important thing uh, that's different about working on film, is you have to forget there's a camera near you and there's a group of crew members around that camera there's the sound boom operator there's the director sitting next to the monitor or next to the camera all of these people aware that are right feet away from you and rather than a proscenium separating you from the audience
0: yeah it's different and when you're on a sound stage it's a little easier because of the lighting uh, when you're on location, though, you know, there's somebody right there. And when you're doing, you know, any kind of practical effects, which I've done, you know, uh, decades of, you know, you might you have people just out of frame, you know, dressed in black that might be putting a hydraulic up your leg while you're trying to say a line. Cool. And, and that that hurts. But, you know, again, on this original film, my very first film, Spring of 73, it's 50 years ago today. Wow. I was up. Uh, I was out on a beach. In uh, uh, near oh, that that cloisters, that wonderful resort, where all the golf legends played back in the twenties and thirties and forties, on the South Georgia coast, and it's it's because it's near a national seashore. It's just pristine there. Wild horses on the beach, and Jekyll Island is near there, and Sea Island. It's rather a famous idyllic place. And I was out on the beach doing a shot, and the camera was literally. I, I mean this mick it was probably a quarter of a mile away wow. and jan and i just walked down this wet sandy beach together and we started this scene and jan was j- just talking like this you know it's something like you know why you know who that that girl that billy you know there's just something about her just just no projection no attempt at projection we had our little mics taped to our our chests and I instantly knew why he was doing that. I, and I loved that. I remember just loving that intimacy and the fact that the crew was a quarter of a mile back, you know, filming me from a, a bluff top, you know, and and it was just this romantic shot with the sun going down, you know, of, of two boys, you know, talking about love, you know, and, uh, and that I wanted more of that, you know, I wanted more of that. And I think for a long time and, 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 and Mick, you remember, the 70s, you know, uh, a lot of times the actors would be brought along for the whole project. Yeah. You know, you, you didn't just shoot us up in 48 hours, hand us our paycheck and send us back on a, on a plane. You know, kept us around in case you needed us. And in many times, Lance Hendrickson and I have talked about this. Our roles were expanded because people were happy with our work. But you also learned a lot. You watched. You went to work the days you didn't have to work. And you watch them film because you were there for a run of the show. You also like that free meal. <laughs> 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 too, too. But uh, uh, well, the yeah, magic and, 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 and and of movies, that original movie, I, I learned so much. You know, I, I went up in my first helicopter on yeah. a Tyler Mount, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and you'll remember that back in the 70s that we were we were really fascinated and our, our technology was lending itself more and more to location filming. And there's a verisimilitude that comes with being on location yeah. that you just can't get anywhere else. Every once in a while, I'll see a really great show and I'll go, yeah, but that's not New York. And I know it's yeah. Toronto. It's or, Toronto, you know, <laughs> It's not London, you know, no, no, that's not Israel. No, no, they're not in the middle East. They're in Morocco, you know,
1: <laughs> <laughs> or I can just,
0: because, and now I'm jaded because I'm an actor and I've worked in all those places, but when you're really in the authentic place, it does kind of infuse the project with with a a reality that doesn't happen anywhere else.
1: Well, there is such a magic about the construction of cinema and the fact that, you know, what Peter Bogdanovich calls pieces of time. Mm. You get a good line reading. It doesn't need to be 10 good line readings in a row. You can have magic put together with pieces and different angles that are, speak their eloquence with different lenses, different colors, changes of of the frame, the movement, and just the actors bouncing off one another in ways that they couldn't do in a formal stage setting.
0: I, I think that's one of the reasons some directors don't like their actors to go to dailies. Of course, now, you know, with, with, with the replay screen, excuse me, on all the sets, which add to the to time of, of shooting. But you can also paint yourself into the frame better. You understand where they, you know, better. Or, and you also are inspired. But I know for a fact that when you go to dailies and rushes back in the day, it's unedited. You know, you just see master after master after master and coverage piece after coverage after coverage and close up after you don't see the editing you don't see the other person listening to you you don't see the other person speaking sometimes you don't even hear the other person speaking and it's very unnatural and it's bad for an actor i think to see you that way i remember bob Rafelson told me you have to be very careful because it can enter your dream state and i don't want to sound like Freddy Krueger here, but it really can. (laughs) Uh, You can really dream of rushes and dailies and it can intimidate your acting. You know, uh, it can make you more vain. uh, It can make you uh, safer, too safe. Mm -hmm. And it can frustrate you because maybe when that scene is assembled and uh, that forlorn locomotive whistle is put in, you know and the music cues are put in maybe it's going to be a great scene and maybe that one line that you hate that you see over and over and over again in dailies won't even be in the camera won't even be on you then maybe the editor will be clever enough to keep it on who's ever speaking or whoever's listening to you
1: and it can be misguiding too because you can see yourself performing a certain way and think that you want to change it or you want to keep doing it that way when yeah,
0: you get self-conscious or you get, you say, Oh, I look cool there. And you start repeating yourself, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well let's stick in the seventies for just a little while longer because you auditioned not only for Luke Skywalker, but also for Han Solo. Tell me a little bit.
0: You know, it's strange. And, and I, I, I keep trying to set the record straight on this. I, it's a great story and I've told it many times. And many ways, you know, such as my memory uh, is retained. But I tell this as a once upon a time in Hollywood story. (laughs) And once upon a time in Hollywood, Robert England and his girlfriend, Jan Fisher, who went on to write Lost Boys, and a kid named Mark Hamill all hung out at my wonderful uh, uh, Neutra Apartment in the Hollywood Hills.
1: Oh, wow. Valley side
0: of Studio City. Yeah, uh, right. Uh where... RG Armstrong lived across the street. Mary Time. know exactly Borg. where that is. Yes, wonderful. Yeah. You know, breakfast at Dupars. You know, yeah. you know exactly where I am. At any rate, I had been begging and pulling hair, trying to get in for Apocalypse Now. I had read the original draft and loved it. Just you know, loved it. And my agent got me in and I thought that he had done what I asked him to do, which was to get me in to read for the part of the cookie, the chef, the part that the late great Frederick Forrest played. But in fact, he didn't, he got me in because he knew I surfed. He got me in for uh, the surfer, the part that I, one of the Bottoms brothers played Joe Bottoms, I think, but I I may have that name wrong. Uh, I know it wasn't him, but any, I've worked with him, but anyway, um, so I was too young for, for the chef for cookie. And I think it was a, a, a Frederick Forrest was a zoyotrope contract player then like Harrison Ford and Cindy Williams. And I think he was already set, you know, cause it was going to be a very expensive movie and they, they love Freddie's work. And so they let me read for the surfer, but I could tell. And I think somebody said, or I heard somebody say, he's too old. And I had my hair combed back rather severely. And I always have had a high hairline. And so that wasn't a good idea. But I was dressed in thrift shop military gear. And I had on a great old faded military shirt, and I had on a pair of green 501 Levi's that were been washed a million times, and a pair of desert boots, you know, and my buttons were unbuttoned, and I had long, blowing hair, combed straight back. And somebody in the office, and it may have been Fred or one of his people, took me across the hall to where this, uh, they're making this space movie. One of our partners is uh, in Zoetropes, making this space movie. And and they're having some problems. So they rushed me across the hall, probably to make me feel good, get me out of there, because I wanted so desperately to read, you know, for the Frederick Forrest role in Apocalypse. And I went in there and they took a Polaroid of me, I think, for Han Solo. I vaguely remember they were having a problem with that role at the time. And it may have been that Somebody had turned it down. And I don't know, there's all sorts of stories out there. Tom Selleck and lots of stories. I don't know. But I know I heard somebody say that originally they had wanted Han to be like that cool uncle that comes around for the holidays, you know, and gets you high in the backyard with a joint. And they wanted him older, considerably older than Luke. And that wasn't me. I was pretty close to Luke, Luke in age. And, and, uh, uh, and in fact, I was going up, against Billy Catt for a lot of roles in those days. And I think Billy was right down to the wire for uh, Luke Skywalker with with Mark. And this was right after
1: he had done Carrie. they
0: They took my photo with a Polaroid and I knew I didn't have a chance. But as I exited the office, I glanced down and I saw the sides, the audition script for this character called Luke Skywalker. And I just remember reading the name. Luke Skywalker. I mean, it's cool. It could be a gunslinger. You know, it could be a Native American played by Charles Bronson in a politically incorrect Western, you know. <laughs> Just such a cool name. You know, one of those great names uh, in the entire history of cinema. And I glanced at the sides. I went across the street and had an old Bushmills uh, at the Formosa and got in my beat up dots in 2000 and drove up Laurel Canyon and over Laurel Canyon and went, went home. It's about four in the afternoon. There's a pair of Acme boots on my front porch. I opened the door and there's Mark Hamill sprawled out with a Heineken on my couch, actually a mattress with a, you know, a, a yeah. cover on it, <laughs> you know, uh, watching my Trinitron. I had managed to save up enough money for a Trinitron with a residual or something
1: at any rate.
0: And I think I told Mark, I did. I told Mark about it, you know, Luke Skywalker, because we both idolized George Lucas. I think at that time, uh, American Graffiti was both Mark and my favorite films mm. and uh, and Mark got on the horn called his agent now his agent gets upset when I tell this story because she insists that she'd already submitted him for the role and she could have she may have I don't know I just know that Mark heard it from me because he got on the phone and called his agent. So the the, the once upon a time in Hollywood is that once upon a time in Hollywood, the guy that would go on to play Luke Skywalker, the guy that would go on to play Freddy Krueger, the girl that would go on to write Lost Boys, all were, you know, eating peanut butter and jelly, you know, and living in the mouth of the Canyon on the Valley side, you know, and surviving and watching Reruns of Mary Tyler Moore and listening to <laughs> records of Monty Python and Lenny Bruce and and sharing information with each other, which is what we did in those days. It was kind of like when I first started surfing, you know, you, surfers would all wave to themselves because we were all venturing further north or further down into Mexico and you'd always share some great beach that you found or some break that you just discovered with the before there was too many of us you know and you started to hate seeing surfboards sticking out of the back of a station wagon. but actors were very generous with each other back then you know we were we were like always share hey, there's a part you might be right for or there's some you know and uh th- that's the story but I was never up, never up for Luke or for Han. No, it was Apocalypse Now that I was trying very desperately to get in.
1: Okay, that's very similar to this one.
0: (laughs) Okay, we've cleared up the
1: (laughs) the legend of Star Wars and Robert England is now clear.
0: (laughs) Yes, don't believe what you read on the internet.
1: (laughs) All right, that's a lesson to us all, especially me. Um, But I'd love to talk about your affiliation with Toby Hooper, starting with Eaten Alive, because... It's such a fruitful collaboration that led to The Mangler and then later to our Masters of Horror episode and the like. Um, tell me about the experience of meeting and working with Toby for the first time.
0: Well, I'm trying to remember if I had to audition or whether that was an offer because I I was really strong in those kind of roles. Now, that was my first cowboy, but uh, uh, I I think I I kind of remember going out somewhere in North Hollywood for the audition. I, I I think I'm I'm right about that. And meeting Toby and he had his Sherman. There was always a Sherman in his fingers, you know, that that cigarello, you know, yeah. uh right out of a Sergio Leone film. And he barked every he barked kind of, you know, Toby can't talk like this. Yeah. You know, and it was and you could hear a little bit of the Texas in there if you if you if you had an ear like an actor. And uh my memory is walking on the sound stage and being so blown away by a three-story, it was at the old Raleigh Studios across the street from Paramount, uh, you know, kind of behind the Esquire Revival Theater there. And, uh, and I remember, and, and it was still the original old, old lot in Hollywood in those days, you know, just, you know, with little teeny shingles literally hanging out over the yeah. writer's rooms and things. And... Walking on the soundstage, and there was this three-story Victorian house, incredibly lit, and there were tumbleweeds, and my car, which was a, a, a two-door Cadillac Eldorado, and uh, uh, and I underlined two-door because that's what makes it cool, and there <laughs> was uh, uh, cages on the on the veranda of this old Victorian, you know, Texas house you know kind of like a, a rundown miniature of the home in giant and we right. know how great george Stevens framed that and used that
1: yeah.
0: uh as as a look and I, and in the cages there were monkeys and there were gila monsters you know and lizards and and, uh, and an old bird you know and 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 they were squawking away and then there was this row of directors chairs and i love william findley He's one of my favorite actors of all time. I think he does the greatest mad doctor in the history of film in Brian De Palma's Sisters. So, nice. William Finley's sitting there. Mel Ferrer, who may have still been married at that time to Audrey Hepburn, uh, was there. Uh, Carolyn Jones, who doesn't love Carolyn Jones? You know, yeah. she's an Oscar winner.
1: Morticia, the um, great
0: woman. Neville Brand, yeah. my mother. My mother was a huge fan of Neville Brand's. And as a child had turned me on to live uh, Playhouse 90 kind of programming where Neville Brand was a guest star or Lee Marvin, or she, she also loved it. was a very young Ricardo Montalban back in those days. I remember there was one where Lee Marvin and Ricardo Montalban got in kind of like a, a modern jujitsu kind of fight in a locker room or something. And it was like a, you know, one of those quality, Studio One or whatever those shows were called back then. So I knew who Neville Brand was. And in fact, somebody in college had turned me on to a great kind of cinema verite film that Neville Brand had done about, where he played a Navy chief, kind of heroic and and kind of a boy's movie. Um, So I, and, and I knew him from Westerns and everything. And Neville was there, and and I was all had always been impressed by Neville, even though he was chewing scenery a bit uh, <laughs> for Toby, but he should have. It was a horror movie. It was a melodrama, and 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 Marilyn Burns from Texas Chainsaw Massacre was sitting there, and it was just this extraordinary cast: Stuart Whitman, you know, and uh, and, and of course Stuart Whitman, I, I, I idolized him from Sands of the Kualahari, you know, right. running around with a perspiring Susanna York. You yes. know, wearing nothing but a pair of cutoffs and fighting giant chimps, you know, <laughs> uh, speaking of boys adventure films. Love and uh, uh, and I don't know who what was more dangerous, the chimps or Stanley Baker in that film. But anyway, <laughs> um, I you know, so I was I, I w- it was just blown away because I knew all of these actors since childhood, you know, and I had to come in and act with all of them, you know. And uh, so that's my entrance into Eaton Alive. And of course, Toby almost instantly took me under his wing and we just hit it off uh and 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 you are are maybe closer to toby than i ever was i've done i think four movies with toby but toby could talk about anything yeah like john carpenter you know toby would talk about rock and roll and texas blues and you get him talking about motown or stacks records or and toby knew history i remember being with toby in israel at and it was called a prayer, Arab called a prayer. And we were at a place called Benny the Fisherman's and they put up a, a pitcher of lemonade in front of us, three to one, uh, if you remember all the fad with uh, the, the Russian vodkas back in the eighties, it was that pepper vodka. And uh, uh, Toby's then girlfriend, I believe she was an editor. And Toby looks out at the reef. And then he, then he's like, he, and he makes a phone call. And then he comes back to the table and he tells us this whole Greek legend about Andromache and this reef that we can see boiling, you know, 50, I'm looking at it to see if there's going to be any waves breaking, you know, <laughs> as I get drunk on vodka and lemonade and Toby, he knows that we're at some famous historical spot that like plays in often in Greek and Roman legend, you know, and, uh, and, and that happened to me with Toby on, on a dozen occasions, you know, and I think, uh, I'm, I'm not sure but I think he and my wife Nancy uh, were together just on a field trip in Israel up up north of Tel Aviv on the coast and 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 found some incredible crusader town and and I think Toby knew all about it you know mm. and had all these horror stories about the Crusades and what evil they wrought historically you know for Western civilization but uh uh you know it, he just an amazing guy and you know, I still haven't dealt with Toby's passing,
1: you know. Yeah, it's Um, a rough one. We were very. I mean, I've
0: dealt with Wes's more because Wes and I share more friends in common. So I've grieved. I've shared the grief with friends, mutual friends of Wes's and mine. But Toby, I was just so surprised, and you know, and you know, it it just came out of left field, you know, because I had just been talking to him about some television stuff.
1: Nobody expected it. Yeah. And I know you did that. You did the mangler with him. You did Masters of Horror with him. And you did the first episode of Freddy's Nightmares with him. And uh just over the years. It's just Well Masters of Horror
0: was such fun. Yeah. And and it was such a good cast. Jonathan Tucker's amazing.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: uh, uh but I remember I had to kill this older woman in it.
1: <laughs> yes, you uh, did.
0: And I remember Toby pulling me off her. And straddling her, and she's like this phenomenal actress from Canada, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, veteran woman character actors, and Toby's on top of her, and she's going with it. You know, she's right; she loves it because she's doing her horror movie, and Toby's just screaming, "More blood! I need some (laughs) more blood over here!" You know, know, from (laughs) his cigarillo, and he's painting blood on her way deep in her hair and it's and 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 he walks back and he puts me back on her and says action and i shake (laughs) her a little bit and as i shake her the blood just perfectly drops out of her (laughs) scalp, and i know toby's you know loving it he's just he's like a little boy but but it's so funny you know um he's such a good and i always have to defend uh poltergeist because knowing toby as well as i do yeah, that's a toby hooper film and i know mm-hmm. steven spielberg contributed a lot to that yeah. and he was up to his eyes working with ilm on that
1: yeah you know? and i i was on the set i was doing publicity on the film so i can assure you that your assumptions are correct but i know i
0: mean what all you know that, that that great relationship between craig t nelson and joe beth williams and smoke and dope and all of that that's toby you know he got he found that thing and, you know, I knew the girl. She was in V with me. Uh, and uh, the young lady that, that was murdered um, yeah. uh, by the sauce chef, the sous chef. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, and, and, and that was a great, great hole in yeah. all of our hearts.
1: Done. Dominique, uh, when, when done. Dominique.
0: Yeah. And, and when we were working on V and and, and, and she had stories, you know poltergeist stories and, uh, uh, and, and love Toby, you know, and we had that in common. That was our icebreaker that Dominique and I had both, both worked with, with Toby.
1: Well, Toby was kind of your entree into the horror genre even before. Well, that's my first horror movie.
0: And I didn't even think of it as a horror movie. I, I didn't, I don't know why I had this strange sort of, I paired David Lynch, Toby, and West together yeah, on some kind of avant-garde, cruel, push the envelope uh, filmmakers. Um, and of course they are, Hobie is a consummate horror film director and quite possibly not only influential, but, and I'm gonna say this kindly now without saying any names, but certainly Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of the most borrowed from films ever made. And and we can say that about Jaws and we can say that about Sergio Leone films. And we can say that about some sequences in Peckinpah and and, and Hitchcock, obviously. But there's stuff in Texas Chainsaw Massacres that appears in every movie made still, you know, and it happened there first.
1: And nobody has outdone it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just... Uh, there, You get something happens in your stomach, uh, it tightens, and there's a relentlessness to it. But there's also a strange,
1: peculiar horizon of horror joy in that yeah, film. I don't yeah. know
0: how else to describe it.
1: Well, there's uh, a what I call red humor. It's, <laughs> it's way darker than black humor. <laughs> and, and Toby was the master of that, particularly in Chainsaw 2. There's a film I just saw in my
0: healing process from COVID. Uh, going down the rabbit holes of screamers it's a, a, a from Finland and it's a, a, a you know Nazis versus uh, a a gold digger you know uh-huh. on the scorched Earth of Finland during World War II uh-huh. the Nazis were in retreat and uh it's probably a famous Finnish director whose work I've I've seen elsewhere but I can't remember his name the movie's called something like Sisu or so oh yeah
1: sisu yeah have you seen it i haven't seen it but well listen it's
0: yeah. like tarantino and sergio Leone had an illegitimate uh uh scandinavian baby <laughs> <laughs> it's extraordinary and it's uber violent but it's, it's exactly what you just said to mick it's red humor it has this red humor in it that's just so strange, even though it's like a graphic novels, novel boys adventure World War II, violent film.
1: Yeah. Well, you went from working with Toby on uh, on Eaten Alive. It, soon after you were on V, which was a huge success, and suddenly you're recognizable as a running character in this miniseries that was such a huge success. So, that was on television and therefore reached a vast audience that uh, an independent or even studio film doesn't reach so was that the first experience of you being recognized on a regular basis people have been buying me drinks since 1974 (laughs) okay
0: uh because i do have a, a, a unique face yes uh and i've done a wide spectrum of stuff you know people might see me In a in a little part in a Barbara Streisand movie, or in a big part with Henry Fonda, you know, or you know, in a fight scene with Charles Bronson, or or you know, they they don't and they would send me a beer. No one ever knew my name until I did V, and then here's what happened, man. And they never they don't teach you this in film school. They should they should there should be a class just called working internationally, or 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 learning how to at least take advantage of having an international success. Sometimes you have a movie that's not a big hit in America, it's a hit overseas, or it's a hit in Japan, and, or it's much bigger there, or it lasts longer. Overnight, everybody in America and all over the world learned my name from V. And a year later, I did Nightmare on Elm Street Uh and it was international. So it was like a one, two punch science fiction on everybody's television in their living room. And then horror at the number one international hit movie back to back one, two punch. And it's when they learn your name uh, and you, and you're international, it just changes your life. I mean, and, and, you know, I mean, I could tell you, you, and you've been around the world, and you know how much fun it can be and and wonderful at getting someone to tell you about some project you've done and that they love. You know, I I think your stand is the best stand ever. And 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 you know, it's like some kid from Russia comes up to you, you know, or some girl in 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 Milan, and that's when you know you've arrived when you when you taste that international audience, and then you start working internationally. And that's also a lot of fun. You know, it has it has its ups and downs and it has its pros and cons. But that's what happened for me with V is I I became international almost overnight. Uh and uh it just changed my life.
1: Suddenly the press wants to talk to you, they all around the world. You're well, known- and it's
0: also film festivals. I mean, yeah. you know, you're you're on a film festival and 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 you don't even know who he is yet. There's Javier Bardem, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or or Guillermo del Toro, and or you're at a film festival, you know, and uh, uh, you're, you're you're a judge with Christopher Lee, yeah, and the guy that directed The Ring, you know, or you know, I remember I was in the French Alps once with the English, I mean, the French Elvis, Johnny Halliday, yeah, Argento, and and uh, uh, oh God, John John Landis, we were the jury, you know, <laughs> French Elvis, Aja <laughs> Argento. and John Landis and I were the jury and it was like insane, but the food was great.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I bet it was. Well, along comes A Nightmare on Elm Street and it's a phenomenon. The movie is a hit when it comes out, but it only gets bigger with each of the sequels. They become they feed upon each other. It's an Ouroboros. It's a snake eating its tail. It just grows and grows. And so you're known specifically as Freddy. Now, Having worked with Tony Perkins who played Norman Bates in all the psycho movies and having made the fourth one, I know that he felt really limited by the success of that character. Um, Did you ever feel that? Was there ever, uh, were you always appreciative of, my God, I've leapt into this role that has opened so many doors for me? Or was there ever a time where, I don't wanna just be Freddy, I'm Robert England. Well,
0: you know, eventually Anthony Perkins did Catch Twenty Two with Mike Nichols, uh, the trial with Orson Welles. Uh, he did that a, a great Greek film, uh, uh, art films, and, and and lots of other stuff. Oh yeah, I William
1: Wyler, every every great. Yes, draft. I think
0: even though he starred with with Jane Fonda in Tall Story and one or two other things, he hadn't done a lot before Psycho. Right. And I actually had, uh, you know, it's, I had this weird career in sort of three acts. Uh, you know, there's like a fat, you know, 12 years before Freddie. And then there's Freddie, which is a fat 10 years. And then there's a break where I'm doing movies all over the world. And then there's Freddie versus Jason. And then there's all the work since then, everything from cartoons to voiceovers to, you know, uh, you know, knocking off a couple of horror, little low budget horror movies a year. So, but I think with Anthony, who was a leading man, he was a beautiful guy and, uh, you know, had this great physicality and charm. uh, I, I think that's why he fought it a little bit because Psycho was so huge And he was so identified with it. And some of the tricks that he used as Norman Bates, he had to be careful of because if he, if they did show up any of the neuroses that he used as an actor, uh, as Norman Bates, he had to be careful to always kind of keep those out of his performance. So it was just an, I think, an extra burden to him. A lot of stars are allowed to retain those uh, mannerisms, you know, and their mannerisms makes them
1: stars in the first place. That
0: makes them stars. Their mannerisms of charisma, in many instances, whether it's Brad Pitt or Paul Newman, or Tom Cruise, you know, uh, 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 you know, George Clooney. We love those mannerisms, you know, and uh, that's something we anticipate and wait for and applaud. Well, Christ- Christ- and I think, but I think Anthony, I think he chomped at the bit because he had to fight all those tricks that he used with norman bates and he i think he kind of felt that maybe he missed at the age after norman debates maybe he missed and and, you know only actors know the parts that they are rejected for you know and all actors whether you're tom cruise doesn't matter who you are get get told no there's parts they didn't get along the way we always hear about these things or parts that people turned down or Tom Selleck turned down Indiana Jones and stuff. You hear about this stuff or people didn't get roles. Huge actors didn't get roles and uh, were rejected. And I think that that happened to him post psycho for a while. And then he did some stuff and, and he, you know, in Europe and he did some smaller roles and then he charmed his way back into Hollywood's good graces and was doing great work, you know, uh, uh, you know, in 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 later in his career, but that may have really, uh, you know, because it's that thing where they always say it. You know, I know Wes used to hate. Would always say after Wes's name, Wes Craven, Horrormeister, Horrormeister right. Wes Craven. He hated that. Yeah. And Wes loved horror and taught me to respect it and taught me to remember my childhood love of horror. You know, you were talking in your intro uh, about Lon Chaney, and I had buried buried a whole memory as a child of going to my godfather's home and looking through all of his coffee table books he was a distributor for simon and schuster at one called the movies and looking at a two-page foldout of all of the different makeups that the man of a thousand faces lon cheney had done and lon cheney and lon cheney's name have been in my brain since the second grade, since I was seven years old, because of those two pages. And I, I often wondered, did that, did that burrowed memory somehow come out and, and help me make it easy for me to say yes to Wes and the challenge of the makeup of, of playing Freddy? But Wes reminded me of a lot of that, reminded me of the little of little Robbie England. Who loved horror movies and loved Hammer films and mowed lawns and and spent Saturday mornings trying to cajole a neighbor's mom into driving us all and to the Rosita movie theater. Oh, the know, Reseda drive-in! I the used the Rosita over a double bill. Yeah, Chico's Bonbons. Oh my God! <laughs> or the Studio City, the Lorena, the Lorena in Studio City. I saw opening day of uh, Forbidden Planet. Wow! We watched it three times in a row. We couldn't believe it, you know, Robbie the Robot, Anne Francis, Leslie Nielsen, you know, Vista Vision, you know, everything you could ever, And that sound effects, you know, that soundtrack. Oh,
1: incredible. Amazing. Well, even Christopher Lee resented that Dracula was what people thought of him for. But Dracula was what allowed him to play the Wicker Man and the other things that he was. Lord of the Rings, all of those.
0: All of that stuff. I hung with I hung with Chris in Brussels and I had lunch with him every day for 2 weeks. Yeah. And I'm talking two bottles of wine. <laughs> I got dragged on the opera tour. I was <laughs> with him when he I watched him do opera scales. He had the most beautiful tweed jacket from Savile Row I've ever seen. His wife was very fond of Nancy and I because Nancy Showed her where all the best chocolatiers were, Brussels. (laughs) But it took me forever to get him to talk about any of that. And I have hanging up on the wall behind me here, an original black and white hammer still uh, with the upside down girl with blood in her cleavage. And Christopher signed it to me.
1: Yeah,
0: He talked about, he would tell me every, but when he found out I was the same thing happened with Henry Fonda, They found out, and I talk theater really well, and they found out I was from the theater and we would be talking about great plays and stuff. And uh, that's when both Christopher Lee and Henry Fonda opened up to me and started to share stories and started to tell stories, pro and con about Hammer and stuff.
1: Well, let's talk about Hollywood Dreams and Nightmares because you've written an autobiography that was incredibly well received and beautifully done. Uh, And now, you know, we're coming full circle. You still have a strong career going and you can pick and choose the roles, really strong voiceover career going in superhero animation and things like that. But now the story is about you. You're the center and it's a history, not only of your life, but of your work. And tell me how that feels. Um, Well, it's... I think of
0: it as a story about this actor named Robert England, who survived over 50 years in Hollywood. And the dreams and nightmares are the hills and valleys. You know, the dreams and nightmares, uh, you know, and, and got real lucky in his second act. You know, very fortunate with a huge horror franchise and was wise enough because he'd been around for 12 15 years was wise enough to go with the flow and to recognize and to respect the genre and what it represents and nobody else was stepping up then so i did
1: what and did open your the makeup eyes and- off yeah. yeah
0: but when i took the makeup off after after 10 years um i'd aged and i started getting offered roles in the genre, but they were the old priest, you know, uh, or, or, or a scientist, you know, or, or a doctor and, or the, you know, or the guy that tells the backstory. And I, and right. as I've aged, I can still play those roles. I've got one coming out. Uh, but the, the it's, that would have never happened. Had I, had I con- tried to continue to play the sidekicks and the best friends, because those roles starting in the mid seventies, did not age well. They aged out. Back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, you know, you had Walter Brennan and Arthur O'Connell playing sidekicks to John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart. You know, and and, and they, they could have an old buddy, an old guy, an old alcoholic, or an old guy that was their buddy that they were they were helping out and taking care of, and he helped them out. You know, uh, as a as a private eye or something. Whereas I would not have aged into those roles. Those roles don't exist anymore. They it changed. Something changed. The Western went away. Lots of things happened. So I remained loyal because I saw that happening. I remained loyal to the genre and because and this is just pure serendipity, because I was working a lot in Europe and it's just such fun to go for two months or three months to, you know, to Budapest, you know, or, or to Rome or somewhere like that. It just a great adventure. Uh, for for an actor in his 30s or or early 40s. And uh, uh, so when I talk about Hollywood dreams and nightmares, I think it's just the the sort of wisdom I have now in hindsight uh, that I can impart and share about surviving all those years. And one of them was, one of the things I can share is I, I was loyal to the genre and it was the smartest thing you know, that I could have done. But I, I also remember one day just, you know, I, I'll be at a convention, you know, Mick, and somebody will bring up a photo of me and Jamie Lee Curtis on Nancy Drew. or They'll bring a photo of me and James Earl Jones, in some guest star role. I have completely forgotten about these things, but that stuff adds up and there's an accumulation of that. And you realize, geez, I've worked with a little bit, I've worked with a lot of people. I mean, I've worked with Lillian Gish You know, so I'm six degrees of separation from D.W. Griffith and Charlie Chaplin (laughs) and Mary Pickford. I can play that game, Um, you know, and uh, and there's these adventures along the way, you know, getting drunk and sharing World War II stories with with Jack Warden, me and Richard Thomas on location in the French Quarter, you know, and uh, over the year, those things, you know, they they layer. And you look back and it's like, I, I, I like sharing them. But this isn't a movie about a documentary about my talent. I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a working actor and I'm proud of that. I'm a character actor. I'm proud, but it's about a, also about a, it's about a guy that survived for 50 years. And I, I learned to live with the rejection that we all have to deal with too. I mean, I've been up for, you know, people always talk about, the, the reason I, I try to keep the loose Skywalker Thing because I wasn't up for Lou Skywalker. I wasn't up for Hansel. I was up for March for Die with Gene Hackman, which yeah. I thought was gonna be the biggest movie in the world. You remember that movie. Yeah, Dick Richards. Nobody yeah. knows what I'm talking about anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I was up for the last detail, you know, for a minute. And Randy Quaid was brilliant in it. But yeah. I mean, that broke my heart, you know. I I couldn't eat for a week. That was such a disappointment for me. Mm-hmm. And, and years later, I ran into Daryl Ponixon at a, at, a, at an art movie, and there was nobody in the theater but he and I. It was John Houston's Fat City.
1: Oh, good. And we
0: talked about it during intermission, and he told me what a fan he was of me, and literally wrote about me the next day in the Herald Examiner. Where the hell was he at my audition, <laughs> <laughs> Daryl? You wrote the book, but I have a lot of those. I can talk about weird stuff. I mean, I had a bucket load of callbacks for uh uh you know dukes of hazard who would i be if i had wound up on that show and and i i I, you know originally i was up for the original kojak the one of the parts on that was originally an irish street punk who Uh was sort of like a stoolie you know kind of an informer for uh for telly Savalis. and they changed the role made him a cop but and i didn't get the part but those were big deals in a young actor's life and you know that seasons you and it makes you tougher you know, and, you know, I still, there's still stuff like that, that I have to just, you know, my wife's constantly scolding me. She says, forget about it. It's over. It was 20 years ago. Well, we it are happens, all, you know, so it good. happens. And, and, and we all have, to, I think if it happened to me, imagine the secrets Tom Cruise has about early in his career or people like that about people that told him no, you know?
1: Well, we're also grateful for the trajectory of your career because, You did end up as an icon of a genre that people embrace, that they feel the movies are their own, they want to own them, they have conventions, they have festivals where they show their love and appreciation. Our genre is the one that sticks most deeply in the hearts of the fans.
0: I think it's replaced so many now. Uh, You know, horror has always been around. There's a, a silent film, Frankenstein, and of course, Nosferatu. But I think... It's just survived for so long and it's gone in so many directions. You know, we have so many different recipes now in horror, uh, you know, and, it, and it's, con- it's in this constant evolution. And uh, I'm, I think it, I, I'm proud of that. But I think people now, both intellectually and just heartfelt, sense that and realize that. And realize that it's existed now over a hundred years, and uh, it, it's still part and parcel. And every week, there's a new horror film. And I think the great thing about uh, uh, about the internet now and about streaming is these beautiful little great films that you know might get lost in the shadow of a, of a of a superhero movie or a Marvel film. They do get discovered now. You know, people do find them whether they go to the horror menu. On Netflix or Prime Video or, or or Apple TV, they do find them. They can they can go deep down that rabbit hole of horror, and they see something interesting. They can watch that free trailer, and uh, and I and I love the way horror is reinventing itself. I, I wouldn't want to live in a world without Jordan Peele. Let's put it that way. Oh, <laughs> yeah. well,
1: Robert, thank you so much for sharing this time with us. Uh, the movie's great. I'm so proud that I was actually asked to be interviewed in that in, in the documentary. I was and, so surprised. I had tribute. no
0: idea which of my colleagues and old friends were, were, were asked to say things or come in to sort of support stories that I've told. And uh, you were very kind, Mick
1: well what a great opportunity to pay tribute to a good friend and a great well that's because
0: i wasn't in the stand punk
1: (laughs) (laughs) next time
0: i'll never forget that that little dog your little dog too (laughs) yes thank you mick
1: thanks it was really great to see all right
0: thank you for listening to postmortem with mick garris Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.
1: Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by
0: John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts.